Uh, We're going to be continuing our series this morning that we started a few weeks ago in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, That text is printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, We're starting, uh, we'll be in chapter 2, starting in verse 5 and following. And and we've said uh, by way of introduction that we don't know exactly who the author of Hebrews was. We have a few ideas as to who it might have been, but we don't know for sure. But we do have a pretty good idea that those receiving this letter would have been Christians with a Jewish background. They would have had a Jewish background. They had embraced Jesus by faith, but they found themselves in a spot where they were uh, tempted to return to their Jewish roots. Uh, to neglect Jesus and to return to the life that they knew prior to knowing him. And into this situation, the, the author writes with, with one overarching theme in Hebrews, and that's that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior to everything else. And in this first section, he has uh, talked a lot about angels. He, he's compared Jesus to angelic beings, which, which are found throughout the scriptures in the Old and the New Testament. And by this original audience, they would have been held in great esteem. That would have been a really big deal to them. And he's saying uh, that Jesus is even greater than these angels. And we talked about this at length last week, and the author continues this argument in our text this morning. And in so doing, he shows Jesus as our champion. And I wonder what comes to mind when you think of a champion. Just after I graduated college, I had the opportunity to go to France for, the, for a portion of the summer and watch uh, Lance Armstrong compete in what I think was his fifth Tour de France uh, victory. Obviously, the Tour de France is, uh, you know, probably the biggest cycling event in the world. Um, at this point in time, in my mind, uh, Lance Armstrong was the embodiment of a champion. Uh, He did things that had never been done in cycling before, and we know a little bit more as to why that was at this point. Uh, He rode faster than anyone else had. He built some of the best cycling teams, and he was always so clutch when he needed to be clutch. He was a champion. What comes to mind when you think of a champion? Uh, Let's think about that as we look at the text this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, 
Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask for help as we look at it together. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word to us this morning. Uh, Lord, you alone know our hearts as we gather together, and we pray that you would meet us uh, by your Spirit through your word into the situations that we find ourselves today, and that you would help us to bring these things captive to you, that you would minister to us, you would reveal more of yourself to us and your love and your grace to us so that we might know and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, every Friday night in my house uh, for the last few years has uh, been family movie night. Uh, this is a great tradition, uh, one that we look forward to all week. Uh, one of the movies we watched multiple weeks this summer was The Sandlot. Uh, selfishly, I love this because I, I loved this movie when I was growing up, and, and now my kids love it as well. Uh, the Sandlot is a story of a group of boys uh, who, over the course of the summer of 1962, um, gather uh, daily to play baseball in this old uh, Sandlot baseball field right by their neighborhood. Scotty Smalls is one of the main characters. He's known as Smalls. Um, he's new to town, and he befriends this group of boys, and they begin to play baseball with him. And as you see this group of boys gather, it becomes very clear who the leader of this group is. It's Benny the Jet Rodriguez. Benny is their leader. He's the one who, uh, who organizes all these practices, who keeps them focused. Uh, Benny sort of coaches them as they're playing. Um, Benny brings Smalls into the group, teaches him how to play baseball. Uh, there's one scene where they all go to the carnival. Uh, Benny pays their way in for them. Um, but most importantly, Benny is an incredible baseball player. He's absolutely incredible. The, the one actual game that you see them play in the Sandlot, um, Benny hits the, the game-winning Grand Slam. Uh, Benny is clearly the champion of the Sandlot team. And it's interesting how the movie is set up where each of the players sort of lives life in relation to Benny. Uh, they're always sort of living and relating in relation to his leadership uh, the advice that he's giving him, the practice schedule he's set for them, and he's always revered by the other boys. These boys center their lives around Benny and his leadership. Here's what I want us to think about this morning. What gets in the way of us living lives that are truly centered around Jesus? Uh, what is it that, 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 that uh, keeps uh, Jesus from impacting our, our daily, um, day in and day out lives? You know, it, it might be a particular struggle or sin. Um, I, I think for many of us, um, what we struggle with most is that, that we don't 
feel or experience the reality of Jesus, like on a daily basis. Um, maybe we have head knowledge about Jesus. Maybe we've grown up around the church, and, and you may know things about the Bible. Um, kids, maybe you, you come to church uh, with your parents every week, and maybe they, they read the Bible to you regularly. Uh, but Jesus still seems like this thing that's out there. It doesn't feel real to you. And, you know, maybe you're even, you know, you'd say, I'm 100% on board with Jesus and the Bible and Christianity. I'm glad to come to church on Sundays. But, but, but I really struggle to uh, experience in a real way uh, life with Jesus on a daily basis. Uh, there are other things in your life that feel more powerful or that feel more relatable or more uh, important uh, things that, that you've centered your life around instead of him. All right, so how does Jesus go from being this concept that we know about and even agree with, kind of remaining out here, to something that truly changes our lives? Uh, the original audience, remember, they were tempted to go back to Judaism, to a tradition that likely felt more powerful and felt more immediate and more relatable and more important to them. It's into this setting that the writer of Hebrews upholds Jesus as the champion. All right, what does that mean? How is Jesus our champion? Two main thoughts this morning. Jesus is our champion by becoming like us, and he's our champion by conquering for us. So the first thing is that Jesus is our champion by becoming like us. Uh, throughout this passage, it's really incredible. We, we see Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity, we see that he, he took on flesh, that he became human. Look at verse 14 in the text. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Skip down to verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So it says that Jesus partook flesh and blood, just like us, and that he was made like us in every respect. And then look at verse 11. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Then in verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Verse 13, And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. All right, what is the writer doing here? He's quoting a psalm, and he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, both from the Old Testament, both of which would have been very familiar to these Jewish Christians, and he's telling them that Christ is actually their brother, that Christ is their brother, that yes, he was fully God, 100%, and yes, he is fully man, 100%. Uh, when my oldest daughter, Caroline, was born, we were living in St. Louis at the time, and uh, as soon as we went to the hospital, uh, we called family to say, hey, you know, it looks like she's going to be born soon, and, and so many of our family immediately jumped in their cars and started driving, like, from hours away, and, uh, and sure enough, they got to the hospital, and then they just waited in the waiting room for that day. Uh, sitting in uncomfortable hospital waiting room chairs, eating hospital food, taking time off from work. And 
we knew that they were excited about this and they were for us and they, they were supporting us. But they insisted on not just being for us, but actually being there with us. They insisted on it. And when I got to walk out into that lobby of the hospital and tell them the good news that she had been born, it felt so good that they were actually there with us in that moment. And they wouldn't have it any other way. They insisted on it. God insisted on coming down and being with us and being made, becoming like us. Uh, specifically, we, we get a glimpse into how he became like us in this text. And one of the things we see is that he became like us by suffering. He became like us by suffering. Uh, in the very uh, short amount of time that, that I've been working as a pastor, uh, both in campus ministry and now here, um, one of the common themes I've seen in people's lives is that they either have experienced or are experiencing suffering. It's common to all, uh, whether it's health issues uh, or, or difficult family dynamics, uh, employment struggles, financial concern, uh, abuse, relational difficulty. Uh, the list goes on and on about the ways that people experience suffering. How does the Bible speak into this? The Bible does not ask us to pretend that these things aren't real or to pretend that they're not that bad. The Bible doesn't do that. Uh, the Bible does not uh, just tell us to focus on the positive things we have going in life. It doesn't do that either. Uh, the Bible actually validates the hardship and wrongness and sadness of our suffering by Jesus becoming like us and suffering himself. Jesus suffered. Look at verse 10 in the passage. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And skip all the way down to verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, so in your mind, what, what is the thing that you're going through or that you've gone through that feels so impossible and that you also feel so alone in? All right, this is telling us that there is one who understands exactly what you're going through, exactly what you've been through. There's one who understands that you're not alone in your suffering. Whatever the source of it, you're not alone. Jesus experienced it. There's a reflection quote in your bulletin just above the call to worship that I'll, that I'll read. Look, look at this quote. This captures this well. It says, Christ has taken hold of us with a grasp and a grip from which he will never release us. Every temptation we face is one that Christ has been through already. Every dark path we tread, he has already walked. There is nothing we face that he has not himself faced. There is no occasion when we cannot call on him for help and find it. We can call on him for help and find it. Think specifically about suffering when you're facing temptation, and it just feels impossible not to give in to that temptation. This passage is saying that every temptation we faced is one that Christ has experienced. 
He's experienced it and yet remained sinless. He never gave in to temptation, but he was tempted. Um, This means that that the loneliness or the rejection that you feel that that drives you to act out on your lust, uh, whether with pornography or in other ways, Christ knows that temptation. You're not alone in it. Uh, That feeling of prideful comparison where we're constantly trying to measure ourselves against other people's homes and careers and children and athletic endeavors and grades and dating lives and friendships. You're not alone in that temptation. Christ understands that temptation. He, he has experienced it. Any hardship, any suffering, any struggle, Jesus gets it. He perfectly understands it. He became like us by suffering. And also he became like us by dying. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And look down at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus became like us and even experienced death. And in doing so, he destroyed the one who had power of death, the devil. And along with that, he delivered us from the fear of death, which it says we were enslaved to. Um, I really love to go running on the Swamp Rabbit Trail. And it's usually early in the morning before the sun comes up when I'm out there, which is great when you're near downtown and there's a lot of the the city lights around. It's a great way to see Greenville. Um, But on longer runs, sometimes I will find myself uh, like up past the Swamp Rabbit Cafe up near Furman before the sun has come up. And so if you've ever been on that part of the trail, it's all trees and forest up there. And before the sun comes up, It is so dark that you cannot see your hands in front of your face. You cannot see the trail underneath your feet. It is so dark up there. And when I'm alone in the dark on this trail, it terrifies me. Uh, There are always noises in the woods. And I always have this dilemma, do I like look and try to see what just made that noise? Or do I just pretend I didn't hear it and keep running ahead faster? Uh, Sometimes when I get really spooked, I'll like cough really loud or I'll yell out all by myself to try to like scare off whatever it is that's making the noise. But if it's dark and I'm alone on the trail, I will be scared. There's one thing that guarantees I will not be afraid. Running with a friend. If I'm running with someone through these dark sections of the trail, I have zero fears. Zero fears. They're totally gone. Death is a scary thing. Death is a scary thing. It's mysterious. We don't know what it's like because we haven't experienced it, though we all will at some point. But it can be especially scary because it seems like the the pinnacle of loneliness, this thing that we have to go through alone. But this is saying that we're not alone even in death, that Jesus Christ became like us, went ahead of us, and died. And he's delivered us even from the fear of it. 
He became like us in his suffering. He became like us in his death. And this is saying that, that his becoming like us was actually essential. It was essential that he do that. Uh, my first job was at a grocery store uh, called hy V, which is a chain of wonderful grocery stores in the Midwest. I really loved working there. Um, I started bagging groceries, and then I, then I was a cashier. And when I was being trained as a cashier, one of the things they said to me was, you know, you always need to treat every person that comes through your line with, with respect and kindness and do a really excellent job. You have to act as though your boss is coming through your line uh, with, when you're acting with each customer. And that made total sense, especially at hy V, because they had these things called secret shoppers, these people who uh, were employees that would dress up, sort of go in disguise as customers and, and go grocery shopping and then come through the line. Also, they could evaluate the customer experience. Um, in, in their minds for High V, uh, if they're really going to care well for their customers, it, it, it was essential that they become customers in order to understand what they were going through in order, order to understand the whole process. Y'all, it was essential that Jesus become like us in order to experience what we experienced. The text actually says this. Look at verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It says Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. And this is a major theme in the book of Hebrews that the writer is going to develop in the chapters ahead. Jesus as the high priest. And this verse says that this actually qualified him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, that, that, that he both understands what we go through and can relate to it. He's merciful. That he also faced everything that we face, uh, yet without sin. He's faithful. And, and all this culminates in his act as the high priest, high priest on the cross. It even says that his suffering was a part of this. When it says that he was made perfect through suffering. It, it was, it's not implying that he was not perfect prior to that, but his suffering made him to fulfill this office of high priest. More on that in the chapters ahead. But this is showing us that Jesus is our champion by becoming like us in suffering and in death. And, and this is not typically how we think of a champion. So, so where did this uh, becoming like us take Jesus? It led to him being a conqueror for us. So the second thing I want to think about this morning is that Jesus is our champion by conquering for us. All right, what did, what did Jesus conquer? He conquered sin. He conquered sin. Look at verse 17 once again. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is an important one. It's found a few other places in the New Testament. It just means atoning sacrifice. Uh, the, the bad news of Christianity is that our sin is so bad that blood had to be shed in order to pay for it. We had to have the perfect sacrifice in order for our sin to be dealt with. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus was that sacrifice for us. He was the atoning sacrifice. And this isn't like uh, a loan that we've taken out that has to be paid back. You know, when you take out loans to pay for school or to pay for a vehicle, 
you know, you sign the papers, but then you like, you get the thing, like you get the college education or you get the vehicle to go drive around in. But each month you get that statement mailed to you that has your balance and you have to pay on that debt every month. It's not fully yours. You have the thing, but you're still paying the debt. I can remember making the final payment on my student loan and getting the statement that said I had a zero balance and thinking, it's done. Finally, I don't owe anything more. Jesus, as our sacrifice, conquered sin and paid the debt in full. This means that you don't have to believe the lie of your nagging guilt. You know, that that nagging guilt that says you're not really forgiven. That nagging guilt can be like the statement that's mailed to you every month. That, yeah, you know, Jesus died for you, but you're re- you really still owe something. You still owe a balance. That is a lie. In Christ, you are forgiven because Jesus conquered your sin. The account has been paid in full. And look at the second half of verse 14. It says that Jesus conquered the devil. He conquered the devil. Verse 14, it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The scriptures affirm the the reality of this evil one, the devil, who, who opposes the Lord and his people. And this says that Jesus, through his death, destroyed the one that has power over the death, over death. Even the evil's uh, strongest force, you know, the, the best player, the greatest warrior of evil, Jesus conquered. He conquered. And if even the devil himself has been conquered by Jesus, then what do we have to fear? Not death that no longer has the power over us. Think about temptation that you face in your life. Do you see how this takes the power out of temptation? If you're a Christian, you you still face temptation. It's a very intense struggle. It's very real. But in Christ, you actually have the power to say no to that temptation. You can say no to those images on the screen. You can say no to that gossip that's on the tip of your tongue that will make you feel better about yourself and make you feel more included with those you're about to share it with. You can say no to these things. Because by faith, you're united to Jesus Christ, the one who has the power to even conquer the devil. That power is now your power also. And this is what a champion does, right? They, they conquer things, sin, the devil. But the text goes even further to say that Jesus conquers everything. He conquers everything. Look at the top of this passage. Look at verse 5. You'll see this word subjection come up throughout this passage. Verse 5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So again, he's doing the comparison between angels and Jesus. But then the writer goes on to quote Psalm 8, beginning in verse 6. He says, It has been said somewhere, so Psalm 8 specifically, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, lo- a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. All right, what is this saying? Psalm 8 is describing God's intention for humanity. 
uh, that we as men and women uh, would be these types of people, uh, that we'd be in perfect relationship with the Lord, and that we would um, rule uh, and subdue the earth in a way that we were created to do. Uh, But sin messed us up. Our rebellion against God messed all this up. And so even the way we live in the world now is not what it was intended to be. And so who does the writer of Hebrews point to as the one who does this perfectly? Jesus. Jesus is the one under whom all things will be put in subjection. He's the one who is over and above all things. He conquers all things. I was on the swim team in high school. By the way, I know I'm going strong with a lot of sports uh, stories this morning. You just have to bear with me. That's just what came to mind this week. But I was on the swim team in high school, and uh, each year we had this alumni swim meet. Um, and the alumni meet was essentially a practice swim meet for us who are currently on the team. But uh, any former swimmers would, would come back um, and swim for the day. And it was a fun way to welcome them back and celebrate them. Uh, but one year, uh, one of the swimmers that came back, his name was Chris. And at the time, Chris was swimming at the University of Kansas, and he had been working out with the team, and he came back, and he looked like Michael Phelps. I mean, it was like the perfect swimmer's physique, looked like an all-star, very intimidating to me as a high schooler. And so at a typical swim meet, there are maybe 11 or 12 uh, swimming events throughout the course of the meet, and it would be normal for a swimmer, for one swimmer to swim maybe two to four of those events. That would be a full full load. Um, Chris came to the alumni meet, and he swam every event that day. He swam every event and he won every event. He did not get out of the pool that day and he totally dominated the field. No one came close to him that day. Do y'all see how Jesus is presented in this passage? He is simultaneously the one uh, who became like us, who took on flesh, who suffered, who died, and also the one who conquers everything for us. Nothing can come close to the power of Jesus. Nothing is greater than Jesus. This is describing a champion. I've said that word a lot, champion. Where am I getting this from? In verse 10, the writer refers to Jesus as the founder of their salvation. Now, this word founder is a really interesting word Um, commentators struggle to find an adequate way to translate it. But listen to this definition of what the Greek word means. It signifies one who is both the source or initiator and the leader. One who first takes action and then brings those on whose behalf he has acted to the intended goal. So some have translated it this way, as chief or leader or author, or prince, or captain, or founder, or champion. Jesus is the champion of our salvation. Jesus is the source, the initiator, the leader who both takes action and then brings those along on whose behalf he has acted. In the movie The Sandlot, Benny was the champion. And the end of the movie culminates with with Benny's heroic rescue of this lost baseball that went over the fence into the backyard where there was this giant dog that they called the Beast. And there were all kinds of stories about the history of the Beast and what what he had done to to people. 
And the boys were terrified. And they said, Benny, if you go over that fence, you will not come back. That ball is a lost cause. And Benny said, no, I'm going to go get that ball back. And it's this epic scene. He gets a a, a brand new pair of shoes out, uh, PF flyers. Um, He puts them on. He races towards the fence. He jumps over the fence, finds the ball they're looking for, grabs it. And this epic race scene uh, ensues where where the beast chases Benny all around town. They end up back at the baseball field in this backyard, and Benny conquers the beast. And he conquers the beast so much so that it actually becomes the team mascot for the rest of the summer. It's a beautiful ending. But all the boys up to this point, they they had related to Benny as their friend, as their leader, as the one who took care of them. He'd been so relatable to them. But during this chase, and when he conquered the beast, they saw Benny's power. And so forever at that point, he was going to be their champion. Do you know Jesus as your champion? One who is infinitely more relatable than you could have imagined. Who really knows you and really knows what you're going through. And also as one who is infinitely more powerful and has conquered sin and the devil, and all things for you. Do you know Jesus as this champion? This is a Jesus who became like you, who who was tempted, who suffered, and who died. And this is a Jesus who conquered everything for you. And do you know why he did this? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. All right, this is a Jesus who cannot remain merely as head knowledge that we kind of know some things about. This is a Jesus who cannot remain something that we sort of think about on Sunday mornings. This is a Jesus who reshapes all of life for us. He changes everything. And he's offering himself to you this morning. Won't you reach out and take him by faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Uh, What a mystery. It's so hard to get our heads around that you sent your Son to become like us, to take on flesh, to, to suffer, to be tempted, to die. He can relate to us. And also, you sent him to be the conqueror, the one who would conquer sin and the devil and ultimately all things. We bow down and worship you, Lord. And I pray that we would know more of your son today, especially for those who have not embraced him as champion. Oh, Lord, will we do so? We ask you to give us the grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.